Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Nature Footwear. Nature Footwear are designed around the natural shape of your feet and are handmade in Portugal from environmentally responsible materials. Every shoe purchased contributes to the acquisition of wild forests for permanent preservation. Nature shoes, boots and sandals are comfortable from the first step, responsible to the last. See the range either in-store or by visiting naturefootwear.com.au. Hi, this is the Dumbo Feather Podcast. You're with Nathan. I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations, and I acknowledge traditional owners and elders for their custodianship of this country. So we have just launched issue 68 of Dumbo Feather magazine, themed Treasured Spaces. And one of the conversations we had for that was with author and TV presenter, Holly Ringland. I came to know Holly through the ABC series, Back to Nature in which she and actor Aaron Peterson travel through these vast, awe-inspiring Australian landscapes, hearing the stories of the land. I was struck by Holly's presence and this joy she radiated, and I wanted to know more about her and what this epic year of making the series was like. What came out of our chat was so much more than I expected. Holly spoke of treating ourselves as treasured spaces and shared her experience of actively putting life back in after serious trauma seeking and creating spaces of comfort and pursuing the things that fill her with pleasure. I absolutely adored meeting her and I'm excited to be sharing this conversation I had with her with you here. I really enjoyed uh, getting to know you and observing you in your work over the past couple of weeks. I haven't obviously read your books yet because you are a new discovery for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited to read them now. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thanks, Nathan. Oh, that's beautiful. I've watched a couple of episodes of the series and I watched uh, the Gardening Australia segment and learned a bit more about your story. You have all of these incredible connections to place. I feel like you are the hallmark of this treasured spaces theme. (laughs) There are so many intersections from your upbringing to the show and then to discover your incredible caravan as well, which we'll chat about all of it. But I just wanted to open the conversation to hear where it lands for you, this notion of treasured spaces. What does it bring up for you? You know, the only thing that my mind has thought about in the time since we spoke on the phone was how Frenchy the caravan feels like a treehouse, which we can talk about later. And then also Back to Nature is basically entirely about treasured spaces and how treasure is in every space. So when you ask me right now, how does that land for me? It's as if like it's lit up in lights in my mind for the first time since we spoke and treasured spaces to me are safe spaces. In a treasured space, I am completely safe. 
in every way that safety can be perceived and felt. Maybe it's not only physical safety, also emotional and psychological. A treasured space is somewhere that I can show up exactly as I am. Back to Nature is entirely about treasured spaces and how treasure is in every space. Mm -hmm. Where are you now? Are you in Frenchie? My beloved stepdad is out mowing the lawn. So if I was actually in Frenchie, it would be so noisy. So I am on my bed in my bedroom in the house right now. I am talking to you from Yugambeh country, the southeast Queensland scenic rim area. I have a day bed in Frenchie that I have filled with, I think at last count, there was about 20 cushions and pillows on the bed. I'm a proper You know, like when I lie down, it's not just a head situation that gets a pillow. It's under the knees, under the feet. (laughs) It's something that doing yoga regularly has taught me. I do yoga with Adrienne, that amazing woman that offers. Oh, yeah. Isn't she great? Isn't she incredible? And what I love about her is that she is constantly reminding us to find what feels good. You know, cozy up like when you were a kid. And we made tree forts or we had nap time at kindy. Get your cushions, get a little blankie to put it over your knees. And there's something incredible about being an adult in this ruthless furnace of a world, as Jack Gilbert, the poet, called it. And just thinking to yourself, I'm actually going to have 20 cushions on my bed because that's going to feel absolutely amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so if I was speaking to you in Frenchie right now, I would be propped up on the daybed with my 20 cushions underneath every limb. So you're a comfort seeker and a comfort creator. Yes. And there is no guilt there. Well, there might be guilt there, but the way you just described it, I just sense any guilt, which I really love. Yes. No such thing. Probably the last decade has been an ongoing no guilty pleasures practice, just pure pleasure. Where I was coming from, about a decade ago was very much scarcity and shame practices. And those things were connected to and drew from years of living with male perpetrated violence. Mm -hmm. And they were the behaviours that I carried with me out of what I swore to myself would be the last violent relationship I would have in my life. It's only after leaving that that I started to try and meet myself where the patterns that were ingrained in me from living under the fear of violence. And the truth was they were showing up in every waking hour and sleeping hour of my life. Around 2009, I was 29. I took my life savings and I moved alone to the UK to do a master's in creative writing. An incredibly privileged position to be in, to have savings, to be able to apply to go and have tertiary education and get in, and also just shaky and full of post-traumatic stress. I'd had a little bit of therapy, but... It's still quite raw. It's very raw. We're so often the last to know about how we really are, and then time and hindsight show us where we were once there's been space to do some more healing. It was in that practice of using my life savings to invest in following my dream, that breaking down guilt and shattering scarcity and shame started to happen. And 12 years later now, to compare 2021 me 
to 2009 me is 2009 me did not have 20 pillows, Nathan. Right. 2009 (laughs) me had a maximum of two because two is all we need and anything else is just a bit ridiculous and superfluous. The difference between 2021 me and 2009 me is quite sumptuous. But that doesn't mean that I don't have to still practice things like guilt, trauma, shame. Once they're ingrained in us and imprinted in our neural pathways, trauma is something to manage always. And it may lessen and change and soften. I might do something for myself purely because it is comfortable and brings joy. And sometimes I might feel nothing but just sumptuous. And other times a tiny little flicker of guilt will pop up and I have to whack a mole and hit it on the head and kind of just remind it it has no place. Yeah. You know, I don't want to gloss over the fact you must have had to have seen it sat in a lot of discomfort to arrive at the place you're in. The years between 2009 and now, you know, there's been a lot of hard work (laughs) that's happened. Oh, yeah. There's a really short Mary Oliver poem. It's like three lines. And it's joy and grief, joy and grief. What a time these two have housed as they are in the same body. I have so many favourites of hers. But that one, I feel, is just instructions for being. It's not something that it seems that the culture or the society that I grew up in embraced very much, that joy and grief are the two contrasts that often go hand in hand because we don't know the depths of either without the other. Yeah, the more fully we experience one, the more fully we're able to experience the other. We've been numbed to a point of not feeling the extremities of either. Mm. And that's why treasured spaces and that's why safety and that's why pillows and sumptuous sensory experiences and giving myself languishing, giving myself joy, treats, childlike tactile desires, like buying a velvet jacket, not because it's functional or uh, is going to necessarily provide the warmth that I need in winter, but holy hell. It feels good and looks amazing in the light, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Well, that's something I've I've loved watching in you. You know, you described Frankie as a joy beacon. But if I was going to describe you as a human showing up in the world, it is a joy beacon. You exude. Thank you. And from what I'm hearing from you now, it is. These are decisions that you are making. Uh, It's not something that's naturally an easy thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a paper in 2013 about facing myself. I called it nested dolls and it's about inner storytelling and facing myself. The core of it is this idea of putting life back in. And that's kind of connected to what we're talking about with scarcity versus treasured space and comfort. Part of embodying myself after living for so many years largely disembodied by traumatic memory or actual traumatic experience that was continuing to happen. You know, there's some great theories that talk about what happens to us when we are in trauma. And part of our brain's defense is to disembody as if we're watching ourselves from the outside. So, we're not actually in the body to experience what our brains can't cope with processing. In my experience, that can leave holes in memory or polar opposite experience with self where I'm clinging to myself so that I don't forget who I am and to survive, but I also feel really disconnected and disembodied from self. 
And part of what I've been thinking about since 2020 is this ritual that I have made of adornment and not just in an aesthetic way, but in being really particular about what I choose to bring me joy, to express to myself and the world who I am because identity was something that had been constantly corroded and diminished and was something that was constantly reaffirmed back to me was not safe for me to have. So, I started doing things with my physical appearance, with my body, with the way I dressed, with the way I filled my space that just brought me joy and put life back in. And that came down to plants because they are literally alive. You know, it wasn't just one cactus on my desk. It was how many hundreds of pot plants can I fit in my living room? And then it was the textures of the pots, fairy lights in my ficus tree in the corner. And it's like containers that start to spill over. That started to flow into what I was really deliberately choosing to where because how did it make me feel? That flowed into who's making my jewellery? That flowed into wearing women's work, women's art. That flowed into writing my first novel, which flowed into getting my first tattoos. It was a really holistic, far-reaching, all-connected experience. And I thank you so much for when you say something so kind, like that observing me or watching me is like a joy beacon. It really is like melted gold that fills all the cracks, like in that Japanese craft of kintsugi. The other thing that has given me great pause and conscious awareness to consider around treating myself like I'm a treasured space is this beautiful friend I have in Manchester named Jane. And Jane runs an open mic space for anybody who identifies as a woman or non-binary. And she's a writer and an author and she's a counsellor and she's so wise and inclusive and really just one of those magic community builder people. She came over for lunch one day. We sat out in the very rare sunshine in Manchester on my back deck. And because I was excited because she was coming over, I put on a red dress and I did my hair up in a native flower headscarf because I was excited and joyful. And we were sitting out the back and she was looking at me and she said, do you know how political your self-expression is? And I said, honey, what do you mean? And she's like, your total embracing abundant feminine expression of your joy is everything that has tried to be stolen from you. To have that just brought up and held out to you in reflection in the kind and loving way that she did, she completely blew my mind. I had never considered it that way. And as I have reflected on that, we had that lunch in 2019. And it is something that I honestly have thought about probably every week since because treating self as the treasured space and doing with myself what brings me joy and what pleases me and makes me feel more at home and more like I belong in this body, in this life, that is the most political thing we can sometimes do, right? Yeah, yeah, and it absolutely is. Mm. 
Amen. Wow. Oh, I just want to draw out a couple of things. So much of what you've just shared has made my heart oh. stop and beat faster. <laughs> um, but this notion of putting the life back in, wow, and something you mentioned earlier about life savings and a reframing of our life savings, which is always associated with financial capital, but you just really expanded that and took that beyond. My partner is an incredible gardener. His name is Greg. And so I moved into his home and his garden four years ago. And oh, I should have prefaced this by saying we didn't want this treasured spaces issue of Dumb Feather to be about design. But something, but something that you just called to mind was like, what did we do with minimalism? What were we thinking with this whole design yes, style yeah. movement of minimalism that is obviously reflective of the culture and the absence of life that so many of us have within us? Something's been deadened in us that you, you know, we're reclaiming and you're really inviting us to reclaim that. And anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm moving between thoughts. But when I moved here into Greg's garden, he's someone who has plants everywhere, pots everywhere. It's very harmonious. But my initial inner city Melbourne exterior was like, oh, it's a bit much, isn't it? It's amazing how much of me has surrendered and softened and opened to what he's created and added to what he's created. The more life, the more abundance there is in a place, it infiltrates you. There's more abundance in you and how you express and show up in the world and then look at what you've gone on to create as well. So, yeah, that's what came to mind. Yeah. And I think it has something to do with the sensory joy we instinctively have as children that is hammered out of us by adulthood and our society and our culture, that art and creativity and sensory indulgence is childish and it should be put away with our playthings and our baby clothes and our child toys. That idea of too much is really interesting, isn't it? Because it spreads into so many areas of our psyches, our fears, particularly for anybody that has felt silenced or judged by the world. I mean, who hasn't? Yeah, right. That fear of being seen as being too much is so real and it can rob and deny us of so much of what makes each of us uniquely who we are. I'm really, really familiar with second-guessing myself to the point of paralysis for fear of not wanting to be too much. Mm. Keeping others in mind, my relationship with myself is there's no such thing as too much, and I practice that within myself Within reason, if I notice that my reason for saying no to something is because it's coming from a place of shame, which creates guilt and scarcity and small making, that's when I will apply a massive dollop of no such thing as too much. Gorgeous. And then just to think about how much it's expanded in you to the point we're seeing the series that you've made over the past couple of years on TV to be inhabiting the spaces that you inhabited. Let's just start with what it was like to make this series because we were in lockdown. Most of the country was in lockdown, I'm imagining, when you were creating this. So yeah, there's something around that contradiction which I'm interested to hear, but also just the grandeur of being in those spaces. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we were talking about joying grief and contrasts before and making Back to Nature was just so many of those big life experience contrasts pushed up against each other. It's the first time I've ever been in front of a camera. And stepping in front of a camera in every single 
possible way I could imagine was absolutely terrifying, like make me sick terrifying. Being seen and exposure are not historically safe things to my mind. For so long, I spent time being small as a safety measure to protect myself. Not only was it daunting to say yes and step in front of a camera, but it was just terrifying to consider exposure and being seen because my body constantly had those fire alarms going off saying, this is not safe, what are you doing? But then also add a pandemic, make your first TV show during a pandemic. And so everything was very scary. Being in airports was scary. Being around people was scary. Making a production with COVID measures in place was scary. The sanitizing was scary. The social, everything was scary and anxiety inducing. We were constantly working around border closures, lockdowns. On paper, the show was meant to take us 10 weeks to film when we were still all young and innocent at the beginning of 2020. And it happened over a 10-month period from March to December. And then handling that chaos in hand with being in these landscapes where pandemic doesn't exist because it's not in the gum trees or the sea. What we wanted the show to offer to people we were experiencing in making the show that sense of reconnecting ourselves to the natural world that we are a part of was actually providing us this solace and this gift. We would all have our phones turned off while we were shooting and then we would stop and break and turn our phones on and it was like fire was exploding out of our phones with news reports. But outside of that, this bubble that our tiny crew was in, we were living the very message and heart of what Back to Nature is all about. It was Mm. really actually extraordinary. Mm, I felt that watching these episodes. That first episode, I was moved to tears. I think watching these vast open spaces when you're carrying the heaviness of a lockdown, there's that. What you're expressing, I think we feel what you felt in that moment. That day was also the day that we got the report from the IPCC about the very dire climate science for what's to come. There was so much that culminated on that day. And and to watch just that half hour of you out in these majestic spaces was a real release. Yeah. Aaron and I aren't scripted. We didn't have lines to learn. I mean, we might have had to memorise a few facts here and there so that we didn't bugger that up and really annoy the scientists or the nature lovers. But Aaron and I aren't scripted. So being asked to walk into a space, okay, Holly and Aaron, just walk into a space now and just tell us what you're feeling. (laughs) And like, (laughs) I love all those ad-libbing party games where you start telling a story. There was that great scene in Shit's Creek with Moira Rose and Stevie at the end when Moira is trying to get her to limber up for cabaret and Stevie is like, ends up going down a death. this is killing me. Yeah, this is like a death spiral. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. So I am all for those exercises, but this was leveled up. It was really an interesting experience because in that first episode when Aaron and I are walking towards the Antarctic beech trees, Jane Manning, the director of that episode, she had this beautiful habit. She wouldn't let me walk into a space until it was time to roll the camera. 
So those Antarctic beech trees have been a part of my life because we filmed in the area where I grew up and I hadn't seen those trees since the last time I was home in Australia and took the time to visit them, which was probably four years ago. So in the first episode, when Aaron and I walked towards the trees and I kind of double over with my hand on my diaphragm over my belly, that is my natural reaction to seeing them again. It's just our emotion. The most astonishing gift is the way that we felt is now being felt by some beautiful osmosis by viewers. I know it in books, how there's some sort of almost indescribable exchange between a writer and a reader, how it travels between the two, but I'm not familiar with it as I am with Back to Nature. I mean, it's so remarkable, isn't it, that through a screen I can also encounter a deep human connection and experience of the natural world. What I want to explore a little bit with you is something that's come through both episodes, and that's the resounding understanding and acknowledgement that we are living in constant conversation with the natural spaces that we inhabit. And I think that's part of the emotional response that we have, and it's something that we're longing for, obviously, many of us at the moment. You were telling us at the start of this conversation about putting the life in and making that a constant conscious decision to be alive to the aliveness. That conversation with the natural world emerges with that particular mindset and it starts to become less cerebral. I think it must have to start cerebral and then eventually it becomes embodied. Yes, you worded that so much better than I've ever been able to. (laughs) I just kept on saying to the crew the whole time we were filming, I just keep on coming out of my head and into my body. And I don't even notice that it's happening. It's something that I experience in my own flocking to a natural space, intuitively seeking medicine that I don't know is there. Sam and I will go up to the mountain that's 25 minute drive away and we'll go for a hike. And at the beginning of every hike, I will be anxious and stressed and I will think, I don't know how this is going to change, but I'm just going to keep going and walking. And we walk slowly and we stop and point things out to each other. Even midway through a walk when I will think to myself, I don't know if I'm going to feel better today. Then all of a sudden I stop thinking and I don't even know I've stopped thinking. I'm just noticing a lizard on the path or a bright purple berry that's fallen down between gum leaves or I'll hear the wind in the trees. And all of a sudden I realize I'm out of my head and I'm in my body. My body's talking to me, country's talking to me. I can hear myself breathe. And my breathing is part of the sound of being on country because it's all mirrored and I'm not separate to landscape and landscape country isn't separate to me. And that happened every single day that we filmed the show. That blew me away because we did long hours. We did early starts, as I said, outrunning border closures and lockdowns to get things made. There were endless obstacles and different challenges and everybody operating at a leveled up level of stress. So sometimes I might think, oh, it's not going to happen today. Today, it's just a work day. And every day I was wrong (laughs) and there would be always at least five minutes where I came out of my head and I was just in my body. And I can remember that for every location that we were 
there's no place that we went that is a blur. And I find that things become blurs when we're too fast in our minds and we're racing too much in our heads. But when we're in our bodies and we're at a pace where we're observing and we're slowly savoring the natural space around us, we remember being there. And I have that for every location where we filmed. That really blows me away. What else can it be than the instinctual relationship between my body and country, both being beings and both being alive? Mm. And the country being constantly welcoming. Constantly welcoming. Because the relationship between people and country has been so long and, and so harmonious for so long. That's why the country's still speaking always. You know, it's still there. It's, uh, always there for you to enter the conversation. Always offering. That was the honour of a lifetime, was having this opportunity that I wouldn't have so easily ever have had otherwise to be welcomed onto country and meet First Nations elders and guests who so generously offered the sense and wisdom of the land being a living being, a being that we can all speak and listen to and that we're in a relationship with. This idea of kinship goes through the whole series. Mm, I want to know how it's changed you, but I don't want to ask that question because it's too big and it's changed you probably in so many ways, but maybe through the lens of with this gratitude and appreciation for country comes with a remembrance of the fact that we need to care for country. And I think with that gratitude, the care factor swells. The more I'm connected with my surroundings, the more I want to take care of them. So I talk to magpies very consciously and deliberately now as my kin. (laughs) I really do. It's not just, oh, look, listen, the magpies are beautiful. I speak to each of them. I notice their families. I notice their relationship with each other. Was there something that happened that sparked that particular relationship? Yeah, it was down in the paddock around where my caravan is. A couple of months ago, there were just suddenly dozens and I stopped playing music. I write to classical music. They sang all day and it moved me to tears because when you sit and you realise that just the magpies are their own world, and connection and beings. And that was the beginning of my awareness of my God back to nature has changed me. That experience to noticing how much more driven my care factor is to do as much as I can to be a better person with an ecological footprint on the earth, not to be a perfect person, to just to be better, do more, be better, make extra effort. I was raised with an environmental focus. My mum has always been that way. It wasn't like I didn't know and I've come into a greener headspace. It's like you say, when that care swells, it's really considering country as a being. And what I mean is giving that being the same attention and love I would give a person I love. That connection, that was a really big one attending to country the same way I attend to the people I love the most in my life. How can that show up in my life more? Mm. Just as we come to a close, you know, we've been talking about spaces both that we create and that are there for us that put us in quite similar places, which is really quite beautiful to me, that we can create the environment that helps us to deepen that connection with self and environment. 
and then they're out there for us to explore and be amazed and wondrous at. And I want to frame that question within the context of your writing, which is such an enormous part of who you are, and the role that space plays in your writing and what that relationship is, that alchemy that happens between space and writing for you. That's such a beautiful question. I mentioned before that I've wanted to be a writer since I was three. I really did. My mum taught me to read when I was three. And that's when I turned around and said to her, I'm going to be an author. I didn't know what an author was. She just told me that authors made books. (laughs) An author was a person who wrote a book. And so I just knew that that's all I wanted to do. And that knowing never went away. A psychologist who I was a friend of in Manchester, we sat down and had lunch one day. He was just asking me a few things about my studies. He just listened really deeply and he said, so writing is the one thing about you that's never been broken, about your identity that's never been threatened or changed. It has stayed with you your whole life since you were three. That's one way that you know yourself. And that was a huge revelation, huge light bulb in my mind around my identity because of how true it felt, is that in every point in my life that has been high or low, the deepest thing that I wanted to do with my life from that gut punch instinct place is that I wanted to write. So the thing for me about putting life back in Giving myself a dedicated space to write is a wholehearted, all-immersive celebration and commitment of how my identity as a writer and my writing dreams are absolutely worthwhile investing in. That's been one of the biggest scarcity shame breakers ever, is declaring to myself that my hopes and dreams are worth investing in. It's the act of making that investment from yourself to the expression of your inner world, dedicating a little bit of real estate on this earth to your interior landscape and your dreams to exist outside of you and take up its space and not be doubled as a (laughs) pantry or a bathroom storage cabinet. That's so exquisite. Holly, thank you. That was Holly Ringland on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Her first novel is The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, and it's about a young girl with an abusive father who is taught the language of Australian flowers by her grandmother to say the things that are too hard to speak. The book has become an international bestseller and, would you believe it, is currently being adapted into a television series produced by and starring Sigourney Weaver. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that. If you haven't already... Be sure to tune in to the ABC's stunning six-part series, Back to Nature. You can catch that on ABC iView. And for more stories and conversations like this one, get yourself a copy of our Treasured Spaces issue from your local bookshop or retailer or over at our website, dumbofeather.com. While you're there, you may even consider subscribing. We deliver worldwide. Thanks to our friends at Nature Footwear. 
where you'll find shoes, boots and sandals that are good for your feet and kind to the planet. Naturefootwear.com.au